When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Darmuk and Jalad at Tanagra. <laughs> if you get that reference, you're a Trekkie like me, and I'm so excited to connect with you on that. That is from the episode Darmuk, the 102nd episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, found in the fifth season. I saw that episode for the first time when I was in junior high, and it broke my brain. Because what happens real quick is the Enterprise runs into another ship at a planet. That ship beams their captain and Captain Picard down to that planet. And then what ensues is essentially the finding out that this race speaks in metaphor and myth and that Darmuk and Jalad were two legendary travelers. They were strangers who met and faced a common enemy on the island of Tanagra. And there is a beast or a whatever you want to call it, an alien to overcome on that planet. And this is what they were forging, a connection with the Federation and Captain Picard by beaming them both down there to do just that, become modern day Darmuk and Jalad. Why do I bring that up? Well, first up, welcome back to Beyond the To-Do List, a podcast not just about managing the day-to-day busyness, but the true goal of productivity, living a more meaningful life. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and in this episode, as you can guess, we are diving deeper into the world of effective communication with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and many other awards, author Charles Duhigg of The Power of Habit, Smarter, Faster, Better, and his new book out now, Super Communicators, How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. And what I love about this book is that Super communicators aren't just conveying information and making sure that that information has been received, although these days that's a 100% if you can actually do that. Super communicators do much more than that. They connect in all settings, personal and professional. And no, I don't mean in like a touchy-feely way, although yes, when that's appropriate on the personal side. But it also means you can connect on the professional side when appropriate. And that connection is made through communication and that there's a camaraderie and a mutual support there. As someone who is a communication major in college, this really resonates with me, but I really think it's going to resonate with you. And in fact, I think this book is a podcaster's must-have book. So in case you're a podcaster listening to this, this is something I highly suggest you pick up. But regardless, if you're a podcaster or not, everybody communicates. So I know this book is going to make a big impact for you. And it starts here in this conversation with Charles Duhigg. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome back to the show, Charles Duhigg. Charles, welcome back to Beyond the To-Do List. Thanks for having me back again. I'm excited. You've been back. Well, you've been back never. (laughs) You've been back (laughs) once and now twice. You came two times previously and... 
You've got a brand new book. It's called Super Communicators, How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. And I love this book because I was a communications major in college, which is really something that prepares you for radio and television, both in front and behind the mic or the camera. But to me, there's also this fascinating thing of an exciting kind of almost philosophical or sci-fi aspect to it in a human level of communication theory. And that's what this book brought me back to in terms of like tickling that, you know, part of my brain, so to speak. Oh, that's so nice to hear. Yeah. The theory is amazing. And then the stories are actually amazing, right? The sort of practical takeaways, because the truth of the matter is that, as you know, communication and conversation, there's a science to it. And if you learn that science, you're able to connect with others so much better. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, we want to connect and we want to understand, we want to learn, we want to get along, we want to, you know, whether it's just for our own sake, although really it comes out to be for everybody's sake, learning how to be a super communicator helps not only our own self, but everyone else, because the flow of information, thoughts, feelings, all of the things, (laughs) they flow more freely and they connect. If I had a theme word for the book, I would say connection. And in fact, that's in the subtitle. So duh. Right, right. (laughs) Uh, Unlocking the secret language of connection. And it's sometimes helpful to sort of define what a super communicator is because people recognize them without realizing it. So like, let me ask you this. If you were having a bad day and you wanted to call someone who you know would just make you feel better, does that person leap immediately into mind for you? Yeah, there's actually a couple people. So I feel lucky. Yeah, yeah. Who, tell me one of them. Who's one of them? Well, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just call this out there. One of the people that I would call is uh, my editor that does the show. So he's going to hear this. Longtime friend, 20 plus years since from college. So, And so he's, for you, he's a super communicator and you're probably a super communicator back, right? You're people who know how to connect with each other, know how to really like get on the same wavelength really quickly to trust each other. And there are some people who can consistently do this with everyone right? We've all met these people. We know who these folks are. And for a long time, I thought that like there was something that they were born with, like they were born with charisma or they were extroverts. But it turns out as I got deeper into this stuff, what I learned is literally anyone can learn to become a super communicator. In fact, super communicators weren't super communicators at some point. Something happened to make them think about communication a little bit more. And so once we learn these skills, then anyone can do it. And I love that, that it's a skill. I mean, certain people's other skills or natural innate talents do help them along in certain aspects of it. But overall, it's still something that we all can learn to do and be better at. Absolutely. And and for me, this was really driven home when I figured out that I was communicating badly. And it surprised me. I would fall into this pattern with my wife. And this also happened at work. But I would come home from like a tough day and I would start complaining about my day and say, you know, like my boss is a jerk or my coworkers don't appreciate me. And I'd say this to my wife and my wife would respond with some really practical advice. She'd say, why don't you take your boss out to lunch? You guys can get to know each other better. And instead of being able to hear what she was saying, I would get even more upset. And then she would get upset at me because I was upset. And so I went to researchers and experts and I said, what's going on here? And what they said is, well, you are making a mistake in the kind of conversation you are having. You are not actually speaking to each other. And what they said is, what we've learned is that we think of a discussion as one thing, but it actually contains multiple different kinds of conversations. And most of them fall into one of three buckets. There's these practical discussions, right? Where we're sort of talking about plans or solving problems. There's emotional conversations where my goal is to tell you how I feel, but I don't want you to solve my problem. And then there's social conversations where we talk about how we relate to each other and to to society. 
And they said, the problem that you're having is that you are having an emotional conversation in those moments and your wife is having a practical conversation. And both of those are equally valid kinds of conversations, but because you're not having the same conversation at the same time, you're not hearing each other. Yeah, it's different objectives. And and again, it's not that there's a disalignment in terms of the goal to, you know, get along and communicate. It's that you're communicating. It's almost like the radio waves. You you know, you turn the dial and there's different spectrums and different like wavelengths and you're on different wavelengths, but you're still trying to get through and it's signal to noise. That's exactly right. And and we know this from neurological studies that when you're having an emotional conversation, you use different parts of your brain than when you're having a practical conversation or a social conversation. And so the takeaway from that is like, we need to be using the same parts of our brain at the same time to really be able to understand each other and to really connect. I want to keep moving in this direction with this thread of the conversation, but I want to back up for one second and say, the last two times you were on, you were here about different books, The Power of Habit and Smarter, Better, and maybe I've got the order wrong, Smarter, Faster, good, Better, Smarter, smarter Better, Faster, better, faster. Better, yeah. it's one of those, yeah. you know, but those weren't completely separate topics from this, mainly because communication is an overarching thing that permeates everything we do, but I'm curious to see what are your thoughts on the through line from those books to this one? So when I read The Power of Habit and Smarter, Faster, Better, and in particular, this is true of The Power of Habit, it's very, very self-focused, right? It's about how do I change my habits? How do I I automatically do the things that I want to do? And I think it's really powerful, and I think there's a lot to be learned from that. But at some point, I begin to realize it does not matter how successful you are. So much of our own success depends on other people. Right. It depends on the team we're working with. It depends on how we get along with our family. It depends on whether our ability to go in and have a conversation with someone and convince them to trust us. And so by looking just at ourselves, we're missing a huge opportunity for doing something meaningful. And most of that meaning is created through conversation. It's when I talk to someone else, when we connect with each other, when we're on the same wavelength, that is when we feel like we can work together and trust each other. And so I wanted to figure out, not only can you improve yourself, how do you improve teams and groups and communities or just one-on-one relationships because they're so important? It's interesting. And I love that aspect of kind of shifting the, not completely because we always want to improve ourselves, but shifting the focus off of how do I just improve myself, but doing better communication as a two-way street, as a send and receive Yeah. And this is one of the things. So as I mentioned, like there's some people who are consistent super communicators and they tend to do a couple of things differently from other people. One is that they tend to ask many more questions, actually 10 to 20 times as many questions as the average person. And some of those questions we hardly even register because they're like, oh, what'd you think about that? Or, or, oh, what'd you say next? Right. Questions that kind of invite us into the conversation. But some of the questions they ask are deep questions and deep questions are really powerful because they create a sense of trust between two people. And a deep question, it sounds intimidating, but it's actually um, it's actually pretty simple to do. Like if you meet someone who's a lawyer, you can say to them like, oh, you know, what made you decide to go to law school? What do you love about the law? Those are both questions that ask someone who they really are. And a deep question in general asks us about our values, our beliefs, our experiences. And once we get into this habit, and super communicators have, of asking a deep question, which is a pretty easy thing to do, then suddenly what we find is that people start saying things that are meaningful and real. Sometimes they say things that are vulnerable. And when we engage in reciprocal vulnerability, when we share something about ourselves, it's hardwired into our brains to feel more trusting of that person, to feel closer to them. And that's really powerful. 
Yeah. When you say deep questions, some people are like, oh, I don't know. I don't want people asking me deep questions or I don't want to make the air in the room awkward by me asking a deep question. But I think they don't understand exactly what you mean by deep question. You gave some examples. I think what they really need to understand is the goal is to get to something deep, but really it's like a quick little laser. Absolutely. The question itself doesn't actually appear deep. What you're doing is instead of asking someone about the facts of their life, you're asking them how they feel about their life. Because the truth of the matter is, if I say, what do you do for a living? And you say, I'm a lawyer. Well, if I'm not a lawyer, like it's kind of a conversational dead end. But if I then say a deep question, that's easy to ask. You know, when you were in law school, what was the best thing you learned? Like, what's the thing you find yourself carrying from law school? Now I'm asking you about how you feel about things, how you felt about going to law school, what you feel about like the challenges of life and the opportunities. That's a question that's fun to answer. And when I do so, I reveal something meaningful about myself, right? I create a platform where we can actually connect. Yeah. One of the secrets that I tell people, I just, it's not a secret anymore, is that when I'm preparing as often as I can for a conversation like this one, I will try to go out and listen to shows that they've been on previous to mine pretty recently so that I can kind of get a cadence to their tone, hear their talking points, obviously, but also come up with my own like follow-up questions that that host didn't ask. And what you're doing is in this book is you framed it for me a little bit differently. It's it's not about the follow-up question. It's about the depth. It's getting to that depth. And I'll have that natural curiosity, or at least I am in that moment, leading into that natural curiosity, which makes me think of that Ted Lasso darts scene in the first season. I don't know if you've seen it, right? Where he's yeah, yeah. playing darts with. Uh, yeah. He knows how to play darts. If anyone had ever asked him, he would have said, oh, I actually played darts every single week with my dad. Yeah. So in the book, you know, the book is built around stories, as you know. And one of my favorite stories is the story of the CIA officer who's just terrible at recruiting spies. Like, honestly, one of the worst recruiters in history. And he sort of meets this one woman that he wants to recruit and things aren't going well. And she says she never wants to speak with him again. So he convinces her to have dinner one more time with him. And in that conversation, he just kind of gives up. Instead of trying to recruit her, instead of trying to make an argument, he just says like to himself, this isn't going to work. And so he's just instead starts being honest, right? He starts being authentic. He starts saying like, I've wanted this job my whole life and it turns out I'm terrible at it. I've been embarrassed so many times at how bad I am. And he talks for only about five or six minutes and she starts crying and he reaches across the table because he feels terrible, like pat her on the arm. He says, look, I'm sorry. I did not mean to make you cry. And she says, says, no, no, I, I finally hear what you're saying. I want to help you. I think we can do something important together. And that woman ends up becoming one of the best assets in the Middle East over the next 20 years. But the only reason this guy, Jim Lawler, was able to recruit her was because he was authentic himself. He was honest with her. That's how we create trust. And we can be authentic and honest all the time, particularly when we reciprocate someone's emotions, when we reciprocate their vulnerability, when we say like, look, like, I understand you feel like worried and disappointed in yourself. I feel that way about myself too. That's how we create trust and real bonding. Well, and I think that even the moment there where they're both having different conversations and then he switches to having the right one and then that connects with her and then they connect and get on the same page. Within psychology, that's known as the matching principle, right? What the matching principle says is that you and I have to be having the same kind of conversation. That's why me and my wife kept on like fighting with each other is because I was having an emotional conversation. She was having a practical conversation. But as soon as you align, as soon as you say to the person, okay, I'm going to match you. And and sometimes you could just ask, like now my wife asks me, 
you know, do you want me to solve this problem for you or do you just need to vent and get this off your chest? Once we align with someone, then we're able to move from different kind of conversation to different kind of conversation together. And there's actually a kind of cool um, technique that they teach in schools to teachers, which is that when a student's upset, you should ask them, do you want to be helped? Do you want to be hugged? Or do you want to be heard? Which is, of course, the practical, the emotional, and the social. And when a student says, oh, no, I want you to hug me, or I want you to help me, or I just need to tell you what's going on. I want you to hear what I'm saying. It feels so good, right? To like be able to tell the other person, this is what I need from this conversation. And it feels wonderful to them because they know how to match you. Well, we've all had, or most of us have had the experience of trying to teach or help a kid when they really just need the hug, right? (laughs) And that's just so frustrating as a parent. And it's frustrating for them too, because they just need the hug. And you're just like, well, I see you're frustrated with, I'll use tying your shoes because that was both of my kids' issues for a very long time. They're both grown-ish enough now that that's not an issue. (laughs) The boy just wears Crocs all the time, so that's also part of it. But again, it's signal to noise, and it's getting to the same conversation. I love that. I love, do you need help? Do you need to be heard, or do you need a hug? Yeah. And basically, what we're really, it's just a, a quick code for like, tell me what you want out of this conversation, right? And let me tell you what I want out of this conversation work too. There was a study that was done where some researchers went into an investment bank. And this was like a place where people fought with each other all the time. Like there were screaming arguments constantly. And they said, okay, for the next week, we want to do this experiment. Before you go into a meeting, write down your goal, just one sentence, write down your goal for the meeting and the mood that you hope to establish. So people would write down things like, you know, I want us to to come up with a budget, but I want everyone to be on board with it and happy with it. Or, you know, I want to ask Maria if she wants to go on a vacation with me, but I want to make it easy for her to say no, if because that's awkward otherwise. And so everyone would do this before a meeting. They'd write it down. Usually they just stuck it in their pocket. They didn't even reference it. But the incidence of conflict in those meetings went down 80%. And the reason why is because people knew what they wanted and they could communicate it to others. They were prepared to listen to others say what they wanted in return. And this is something that we know consistent super communicators do is they usually take just like half a second, like half an inch deeper thought to figure out what they want out of a conversation before they start that conversation, because that makes such a big difference. And it makes them able to ask the other person, what do you want and need? Yeah, there's a phrase or or a sequence of words here. Self-awareness is what I'm going for here that gets mentioned on the show a lot, because I think it's just one of the super keys to understanding that next step is taking that pause moment and saying, you know, take my pulse literally or figuratively, and then also check, you know, your mind and your emotional state. Am I hungry? Am I tired? Am I, you know, and figuring out all that out where I am, but then also, okay, what do I next step want? And that's what this seems to be like for me. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. It's trying to figure out. And and psychologists refer to this as a quiet negotiation that happens at the start of every conversation, right? Where the goal is not to win the argument. The goal is to get understanding. Like, I just want to know what you want and what you need. Because if I can figure that out, then there's so much more. And, and another story in the book is the story about this guy, Dr. Bafar Adai, who's a surgeon in New York City and a cancer surgeon. And all these patients would come in who were terrified because they had just gotten a cancer diagnosis. And he would basically tell them, oh, you don't have to have surgery, right? Like it's slow growing. We can just kind of wait and see what happens. 
And they would listen to him or appear to listen to him. And then they'd go home. And then the next day they would come in and they'd be like, nope, I want the surgery. Like, definitely cut me open. And Dr. Adai was completely confused by this. Like, why are these people keep asking me for surgery when I tell them they don't need it? So he went to these communication experts at Harvard Business School and they told him, well, the mistake you're making is you are assuming you know what they want, but you need to ask a deep question. You need to ask a question that allows them to talk about their values and their beliefs and their experiences. And the best way to do that, again, because I'm going to ask you what you feel about what you think of something rather than the facts of something, is I'm just going to say, at the beginning of the conversation, say, what does this diagnosis mean to you? So that's what he started doing. He started asking patients this basic question. What does this diagnosis mean to you? And they would say things. He expected them to talk about medical issues or fears of pain. They would say things like, my dad died when I was young, and I, I don't want to put my wife through that, or, or my kids are really worried, and I want to like remove their worry. They wanted to have an emotional conversation, and Dr. Dai had no idea. But once he learned to ask that question and listen, then he could match them and talk to them on their wavelength. And once they did, once they were aligned that way, then they could easily start going to the practical things about what's the right course of treatment. And the number of patients requesting unnecessary surgeries went down 30% after he started doing this. Just by asking a simple question and then starting down that path of that conversation with them where they're both having the same conversation instead of two different exactly. ones. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. Instead of assuming I know what you want, just asking a question that lets you express it. Now, the deeper questions, does that work across all three of those different types of conversations? Oh, In yeah. other words, I guess what I'm saying is it's probably deep questions to do that alignment, that matching, so to speak. I'm guessing that the type of deep question changes, or is it universal? It's pretty much universal, because the okay. truth of the matter is that, you know, oftentimes when you ask a deep question, someone will say something that's a little bit emotional in response, or, or it will expose an emotion. And that's because emotions influence every single one of our conversations. It doesn't matter if you're discussing budgets at work. There are emotions at play that are shaping how people speak and how they hear, right? Because we might be talking about like, what's the right number for accounting next year? But in the back of people's mind is we might have to do layoffs if we can't figure this out. And that's really scary. Like I might get laid off or I might have to lay off other people. I don't like that. And so Oftentimes when we ask a deep question, what we find is that somebody, somebody shares something that's a little bit vulnerable with us or a little bit revealing. And sometimes it's just practical, right? Sometimes they say like, actually, the thing I'm worried about is, you know, column five doesn't line up with column seven and we got to figure out a reconciliation for that. Okay. That's not really an emotional conversation. That's a practical conversation, right? But now, you know, they're in a practical frame of mind. Like I, I should meet them there. Or I should invite them to meet me in a different frame of mind. The point being that the deep question, it reveals something and we should listen to what it reveals and go there. I think what it reveals is their adult version, I'll say this that way, of the do you need help? Do you need to be heard or do you need a hug? But in an adult way, although there's nothing wrong with adult hugs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe not in the workplace. Maybe right. something. Yes. <laughs> but you're exactly right that like. One of the things that super communicators do, in addition to asking a lot more questions and asking deep questions, is they try and work really hard to show the other person that they want to connect with them. Because showing that you want to connect is half the battle. Laughter is a great example of this, right? About 80% of the time when we laugh, it is not in response to something funny. We laugh in conversations to show someone we like them, that we want to connect with them, that we feel comfortable with them. And they laugh back, which is the most natural thing to do to show us that they feel the same way. And in fact, 
once we become attuned to learning how to look for laughter and use laughter, we can use it as this real bridge. The, another story in the book is about NASA and how NASA started testing astronaut candidates by watching how they laugh. And an interviewer would walk into a room and he would spill papers on accident, but actually on purpose. And then he would he would kind of laugh uproariously, like, ha, 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 And then pay close attention. Did the candidate who he was there to interview, did they laugh politely? Like, ah, that's funny. Or did they go, ah, I'm sorry, like, let me help you pick it up. When people match each other's level of nonverbal communication, when they match each other's energy, they're showing us that they want to connect with us. And when they don't, they're sending a message that like, I'm stepping back. Like, I don't want to connect with you. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people, or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I mean, as you're saying that, it, it hits me that oftentimes when I'm doing these recordings, and th- I mean, I guess I'm spilling everything here today, <laughs> is that I will often put myself on mute so as not to talk over by accident the guest. Like as you're talking, I'm like, I don't want to accidentally cough or whatever. So there's a lot of practical reasons. But the other thing is then I'm almost nodding way more. And you and, and you can't tell that I'm doing that right now unless you can see me. But I'm nodding over emphasizing I'm on the same page. Yes, I understand what you're saying. Keep yeah. going. Keep talking. And that's kind of the mildest version of laughter in a sense is it's affirmation. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And these nonverbal signals are, you know, laughter is verbal, but it's really non-linguistic, right? It's the, it's laughter. It's when somebody like describes something sad, it's sort of like, you know, frowning and showing them that we like are listening and that we hurt on their behalf. All of this are really important signals to learn to pay attention to. As children, we do it really, really well. In fact, basically from about six weeks of age, babies will mirror the physical emotions that they see. But what happens as we get older is that we sort of fall in love with words. Like it's so easy to listen to language and think that we understand things that we stop noticing nonverbal and non-linguistic communication. We ask someone, how you doing? And they say, oh, I'm fine. And we pay attention to their words instead of the fact that like their arms are crossed, their voice is down, they're downcast. But the more that we just remind ourselves, like take in the whole picture, pay attention to everything the more we'll actually figure out how to connect with this person. One of the subsets of superpowers that super communicators have is this skill of listening. And it's not just about those nonverbal and the the tone and the what they said, but what they really said on the layer beneath that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's really important. You know, another thing that super communicators do is that they prove to you that they're listening. 
And the way that they prove it is by voicing that deeper layer. So there's this thing known as looping for understanding that's particularly powerful when we're in a conflict with someone, right? If we have a disagreement, if we're fighting with someone, there's a suspicion in the back of our heads that this person isn't actually listening to me. They're just waiting their turn to speak. And so how do we do that? How do we prove to someone that we're listening to them? Well, the best answer is what we do after they stop speaking, because sometimes they don't notice if we're nodding with them. They don't notice if we're smiling. Speaking is such a cognitively intense activity that we don't, we don't pick up on what our listeners are doing. But if when someone stops talking, if you do this thing called looping for understanding, which is step one, you ask a question, preferably a deep question. Step two is once they answer that question, you repeat back in your own words, what you heard them say, right? And oftentimes what you're doing is you're actually saying that deeper layer that you recognize and that they recognize. And then step three, and this is the one everyone forgets, is you ask if you got it right. Because if I ask if I got it right, not only am I asking permission from the other person to feel like I understood them, but sometimes we don't get it right, right? Sometimes we hear something and we repeat it back to the person they said, and they said, no, no, that's not it. Or, or I think you missed the important part of that. We often get in our own way when it comes to communication and in looping for understanding, you know, they've done studies at like Harvard Law School and Harvard Business School and Stanford. People who use looping for understanding, it reduces the amount of tension in conversations and the, the amount of misunderstanding and the amount of conflict by 80%. It's just amazing what happens. And it's just this simple thing you can get in the habit of saying, what I hear you say is, tell me if I'm getting this right. <laughs> and this is the part where I step in and I say, so if I hear you, Charles, and what you're saying is. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's, and I think, well, and, and so my, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think what you're saying is what communication really is all about, what super communicators really do is they're constantly looking to align on what is this, meaning this conversation, what is this really all about? Which conversation are we having? And so they're paying attention. They're looking for the the cues. They're using their skills to listen, but they're also looking and using those skills to decipher from the other end what that person wants and or needs and then meet them. That's exactly right. And that's exactly what Super Communicators, the book is about, is trying to explain these different kinds of conversations and how they work and how to recognize them and the skills that each of them rely on. And this can sound really overwhelming when we discuss it this way in abstract. But the truth of the matter is, our brains have evolved to be good at communication. Our brains have evolved to actually make this into habits and instincts. If you think about it, like communication is Homo sapiens superpower. Right. It's the thing that has made us so successful as a species, has allowed us to build families and communities and cultures. And so our brains have evolved to be really good at communication. Now, that being said, we live in a very different world than when our brains yes. evolved, right? Like we communicate in very different ways now. And so that's one challenge. The second is that oftentimes we forget to listen to those instincts and the way that we remind ourselves, the way that we help ourselves rely on what we already know is by learning how these conversations work, learning how to recognize the different kinds of conversations so that I know if you say something emotional that like maybe I would have missed previously, I now know if I just ask you a follow-up question, we're going to get to something deeper and realer and we're going to feel closer to each other. That's not even going into the fact that we're living in a whole different world in terms of technology and the, the pressure yeah. slash 
pressure is not the right word, probably just the difference of dynamics and that there are so many different versions of the dynamic now. Like, for example, right now you and I are talking through Ecamm and we're using these expensive microphones and also cameras and yet we're not face to face and yet we are and there's a cognitive dissonance yet connection at the same time for all of that. And then step into texting and or voicemails and phone call, long distance phone calls where it's a detached voice. And we don't think about how strange all that is. But yet at some point it was only handwritten notes through the post office. All of that's different these days. It gets into what I found fascinating about communication theory, like I said earlier. Yeah, you're exactly right. And it is fascinating. You know, in the book, I described this experiment where they brought all these gun rights enthusiasts and gun control activists together. And and the goal was not for them to convince each other. It was just to see if they could have a civil conversation. And they taught them looping for understanding and these other techniques. And in fact, over the weekend, face to face, they had these great conversations. Everyone kind of walked away saying, like, I haven't changed my mind, but I feel like I just understand the other side so much better now. And then they created a Facebook group for them. And within 45 minutes, people were calling each other jackbooted Nazis. Like it all fell apart immediately. (laughs) And the reason why is because it's easy to forget that different channels of communication require different skills. So the best example of this is when telephones first became popular about 100 years ago, there were all these articles that said people will never be able to have a real conversation on the phone because they can't see each other. And so it'll only be used like a telegram, like for like, you know, stock trades and stuff like that. And what's interesting is at the moment, they were right. If you look at those transcripts from early conversations, people couldn't connect with each other. They couldn't have real conversations. But of course, by the time you and I were a teenager, we could talk on the phone for like seven hours alike and feel incredibly close to the other person. And it's because we had learned that talking on the phone is different from talking face to face. And we had learned it so well, it'd become a habit. We don't even think about it anymore. Now, we've only been online for like 20 or 25 years, right? In some forms, like texting is basically like 10 years old. And so as a result, a lot of the rules are less instinctual. But once you remind yourself, like, listen, a text is different from a tweet, is different from a email, is different from a phone call, different rules apply in each setting, then you get much better at using those different channels to connect with other people. And some of that speaks out generational, but some of that difference there between all those different methods and modes is how you learned what you learned to communicate with. Like, for example, I mean, there's the whole like, oh, no, I don't want anybody to like just call me phone call out of the blue. Personally, that's not me. I actually sometimes would prefer you just call me so we can go back and forth quick. But that's me, not my daughter. My daughter, I'll call her at college and she'll be like, hello, like, what do you want? Just text me. My kids are the same way, right? They send me texts with emojis in them. Like it's, there's no words. It's all just emojis. And I'm like, (laughs) what is this? What does this mean? And they're like, no, no, this is how I talk to my friends, right? Like there's a clearly a message there. Like you just don't understand it. And the truth of the matter is our brains have evolved to be absolutely amazing at adapting to different forms of communication. But in order to allow that to happen, We have to think just a half an inch deeper before we open our mouth or before we send that tweet or before we write that email. We just have to say to ourselves, you know, if we were face to face and I said something sarcastic, they'd hear the sarcasm in my voice, but they're not going to hear the sarcasm when I type it out. And so as a result, they might take me seriously. Yeah. With the sarcasm in a text base, like that's the thing is it's almost like 
gosh, it's almost uh, my mind is going through a flow chart inside <laughs> of my head where it's like, if this, then that one, how am I Two, what do I want to communicate? Three, who is it? Four, which communication method is best for them? And then, okay, how do I, if I want to convey sarcasm, like you were just saying, how do I add that in textually or emoji yeah. based so that they understand it and it comes across? And yeah, that's why it can feel like a lot when we describe it this way. But the truth is what happens is you start writing a message to your friend, Jim, and you know, instinctually, you know, like, oh, if I make this little comment and then I put a winking emoji afterwards, he's going to know I'm being sarcastic, right? Like our brains have the ability to form these habits and instincts so that we don't have to think about it. And really all that it takes is learning how this stuff works to let your brain be free enough to figure it out. I think the great thing about all of this that you're talking about here is it's cross-relational. It's all about relationships, but it's across all different types of relationships. It's going to improve the one-to-one, whether that's a spouse or a son, daughter, whatever, father, parent, etc. And also the whole business world and like being in groups. I think my one thing is, is like, let's throw this back into the business world for a second and say, okay, we're in a group meeting. How do you say we apply some of this to best have a great business meeting before it gets started? Yeah. Okay. So the first thing that we should do is this experiment I mentioned. Like if everyone just writes down, and literally this takes like seven seconds, if they just write down what they want out of this meeting, then even if they don't share it with each other and the mood that they hope to establish, even if they don't share it with each other, they'll have it in their own head. So actually Amazon does this, right? Before each meeting, they say, write down one sentence, what you hope to get out of this meeting. They don't share them with each other, but that way everyone knows. That's the first thing. The second thing is to remember that the goal here is connection and understanding. Oftentimes we go into a conversation, particularly a team meeting, and we think the job is to convince people I'm right or to convince people I'm smart or to convince people that we're on the right path. And there are times when that's called for, but that's not a conversation. That's you giving an inspiring speech. The goal of a conversation is simply to understand what each person at the table most wants to say and to help them understand you and each other. And so one of the things that super communicators do is that in addition to asking a lot of questions, and a lot of those questions are throwaway questions like, you know, what'd you make of that? Or what do you think about that? Inviting people into the conversation. Another thing that they do is they just repeat other people's ideas. Because oftentimes an idea will be out there and we'll have heard it. And until we hear a second person say it, we don't fully absorb it. And so super communicators become incredibly influential and incredibly popular, not because they're generating great ideas, not because they're generating solutions themselves, but because they're listening so closely to other people that when they hear something valuable, they can say, you know, Jim just said something really important. Like, I want to just like, you know, make sure we get that up on the board. That's a really good point. And now suddenly, Jim A feels fantastic. B, other people really have heard Jim's idea because that super communicator has repeated it, sometimes in ways that are clearer. And most importantly, I've sent a signal to the room, if you have a good idea, other people will notice. So bring your good ideas. And that's really powerful. In studies, it shows that super communicators are the most influential person in the room without oftentimes anyone even realizing how influential they are. That's totally true. As you're saying that, you brought to mind another lesson that I think connects perfectly here that I learned, again, from one of my communication profs. And he gave us an assignment and he couched it in this. He said, you're going to come to class next time. 
And you're not going to know if it's your turn yet or not, but all week I'm going to call on you randomly and you're going to get, have to get up and you're going to have to speak on something instantly. You're not going to be able to prepare for it or anything. And we were freaked out. And then he said, I know you can do it. And here's why. And he gave this example. He said, I was sitting in a church service on a Sunday evening and the guest preacher randomly wasn't going to be able to be there. And so they called me up. And so what did I have to do? Well, here's what I did. And he walked us through it and he said, and and you've seen this example happen probably in professional speakers. You've perhaps even used it yourself where you get up and at the beginning, you don't start by making statements and proclaiming things. You ask questions of the audience and you connect with them and you find out where they're at and what they want and who they are. And then suddenly they're drawing into you. And then as you're doing that, you're figuring out, oh, well, I know what I can say now. To one, you're using up time, which is great. But then two, then you really deliver something that's much more honed towards that audience in that moment at that time. It's a really, really good point. And in fact, one of the interesting things is if you watch, since we're in presidential candidate season, if you watch Trump and Biden speak, what you'll notice is that at the beginning of their speeches, they ask a lot of questions. Now, they're kind of making arguments, but they're posing them as questions. But the reason they do them as questions is because they know this draws us in. Once I start answering that question, whether it's out loud or inside my own head, you and I are aligning. And it's worth talking about what actually happens when we do that. So like within our brains, one of the things that we've learned in the last decade is that when we are having a deep conversation, when we're having a real conversation with someone, it's reflected in our bodies and our brains. Like right now, even though we're not aware of this and we're separated by thousands of miles, the pupils of our eyes are dilating at similar rates. Our breathing patterns are starting to match each other. Our heart rates are starting to match each other. And most importantly, if we could see inside our heads, what we would see is that our neurological activity is becoming more and more similar. This is known within neurology as neural entrainment. And when you think about it, this is the goal of communication, right? That I can describe an emotion or I can describe an idea. And you don't just listen, you experience that emotion. You experience that idea. It becomes your idea. Our brains become alike because we're feeling and thinking the same things. And it's at that moment that we can really understand each other. And more importantly, that we feel connected. We trust each other. We want to work together. We like each other more. That's what has helped our species survive. Yeah, we can get along, but we can do more than that. We can actually work towards a common goal together, whether that's personal or it's professional. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. On the back of the book, it actually, I'm going to lift it up here. It says the right conversation at the right moment can change everything. And I'm really hoping that this one was that for somebody listening in right now. Me too. I'd love to point people to where the book is out now. This is dropping right as the book's coming out. And I would love to point people to where they can dive in a little bit more, find out more about you and and even your past books because they align perfectly with this one. Oh, thank you. And the thing I will say is that Anyone can become a super communicator. Like this is not something you're born with. This is not something you have to be super slick or polished to do. <laughs> Literally anyone can learn these skills and make them into intuitions. And and so, yeah, to answer your question, and thank you for asking it, is, you know, the book's available wherever you buy books. And so Amazon and Barnes and Noble, but also your local bookstore will have it in stock. And if you want to learn more about me, if you just Google, I'm the only Charles Duhigg on earth because it's a weird <laughs> last name, D-U-H-I-G-G. And so so if you Google me or you Google the power of habit or you Google super communicators, I'll come up. And on my website, I actually list my email address. 
Because I believe, like, again, this is about communication. This is about connection. And so anyone who sends me an email, I can promise you, I will read that email and I will reply to it. It might take me a couple of days or a week, but I'll definitely, definitely engage with you because I think that connecting with other people is really important. It's the thing that makes us successful and healthy and happy. That's a bold move that, to put that out there like that. And we've already sent 21,000 or 27, 27,000 emails. It's, it's like a lot of emails, yes. but like it's, it's easier than you think it is. That's awesome. Charles, I can't wait to see what you do next. I'm loving this. I am going to be continuing to dig through and piece this out a little bit more and, and apply it more consciously, self-awareness wise, as I'm, I mean, I can already tell I kind of felt like, you know, I had a, a much more connective conversation with you. This is the first one that I've had after reading this book. So I think there's a lot of good to be done with this. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. And this has just been wonderful. I really appreciate it. And and I, I hope you and anyone who's listening tells me about the great conversations they have. Well, that's another podcast cross off your listening to do list. I hope that you enjoyed and resonated and that this connected with you. The topic, the method, all of it, that this conversation has won you over because I'm holding my book here right now and I'm going to be going through this again, but a little bit deeper, doing the homework, if you will, because I really know that communication is key. Honestly, even with ourselves, we talk about self-awareness all the time on this podcast. Well, some of the communication that you do with yourself, which conversation are you having with yourself is a great question. Do I need to hear myself? Do I need to hug myself? Or do I need to help myself is a way that we could maybe frame that. So again, I hope that you're coming away from this conversation with some really great thought-provoking nudge towards bettering your communication, becoming a super communicator. That's my goal for you, from me, for this show. And if I did, or at least if I'm getting there and you found something worthwhile in this episode, I would love for you to do me the favor of sharing this with somebody you know needs to hear it. You can do that by hitting the share button wherever you're listening to this or heading on over to the show notes where you can find the link to the book at beyondthetodolist.com. Thank you again for sharing. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you next episode.